This is Rocks to Roots, a podcast presented by the Spokane Conservation District. This podcast series is intended to share education and resources related to land management, conservation practices, and celebrate some of the great stewards of our land here in our region. Welcome back, listeners. This is another great episode of the Rocks to Roots podcast. I'm your host, Hillary. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Dwayne. What's going on, Dwayne? Not too much. How are you doing, Hillary? I'm doing great. Happy Earth Day to you. Happy Earth Day. Yes. What are you doing to celebrate? Celebrate. We're planting more plants. Planting more plants over the farm. I love it. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. And you, what are you doing for Earth Day? You know what? I just actually returned from the Hope for Creation Conference put on by Whitworth um, University. It was awesome. It was up at St. John's Cathedral on the South Hill. Our production ag manager, Ty Meyer, did a fabulous presentation on regenerative agriculture and working with nature. So um, I get to do that today, and then I'll have a booth up there tomorrow. That is awesome. And I'm really... Happy that I was planting, but man, to listen to Ty talk about regenerative agriculture, that should have been, that just must have been amazing. Oh, fabulous. As <laughs> always, you know how Ty is. Oh, He's yeah. just filled with awesome. knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> well, today on the podcast, we have Doug Krapas, the environmental manager with the Inland Empire Paper Company here in Millwood. So welcome, Doug. Great. Thank you, Hillary and Dwayne, for letting us tell our story today. And I feel honored that it's on Earth Day. Exactly. Wow. Yes. Thank you. What a great way to celebrate yeah, as well. Absolutely. Well, Doug, you were so generous to give us a fabulous tour of the mill um, a few weeks ago, and um, it was just incredible to be in there to see your guys' processes and just, I mean, the magnitude of what you guys do in little old Millwood over here is just incredible. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot to cover today. I'm super excited to give you this opportunity to share um, the environmental department and the mill. So tell us um, first off, just a little bit about yourself and how you got started with IEP. Okay. Uh, Oddly enough, I am a mechanical engineer working as the environmental manager at Inland Empire Paper Company currently. Spent most of my career uh, building waste to energy plants all all over the world. And when I mean waste to energy, uh, primarily biomass focus. So uh, if it grows and it's organic, I've pretty much probably have burned it in a combustion system. Uh, and so that's kind of where I, I got my uh, environmental exposure as well, too. I did a lot of the uh, environmental work, air work, uh, putting in technologies to make sure that these were the cleanest burning plants they could possibly be. And so most of my, I cut my teeth on the air side. And then, of course, when it came to IEP, it's been more on water related, and we'll get more into that that discussion, I'm sure. So as part of that, uh, in biomass, uh, uh, in 1991, I built the biomass energy plant for Inland Empire Paper Company, and it burns one of their waste products. Uh, it's a paper uh, waste material that they generate, and we'll get more into that as well, too. Yeah. Uh, and so I was kind of the customer liaison for them over the years, and uh, ultimately, they uh, I was there so much, they decided to hire me in 2004. And so I, they brought me on in 2004. I started as a project engineer there, and ultimately, transition to environmental engineering and management due to the significant challenges that the mill was facing with uh, water quality compliance with the Spokane River uh, concerns. So, and again, we'll talk more about that. <laughs> so it sounds like you're the IEP savior there. Well, yeah, I, I hope so. That's you know, we, We've been there for a long time and hopefully I'll set them up for uh, the next hundred years as well too. 
Yeah. So what have been some of the major changes that you've seen just over the years since you started at the mill? Okay. So uh, we've been there since 1911. So we're 111 years old now. Um, But we are the most modern facility of our kind pretty much in the world. And that's due to significant reinvestment by our ownership back into that facility, primarily over about the last 20-ish years. Uh, It's very impressive, as you saw from the tour. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have the newest newsprint. Well, it used to be called newsprint paper machine. Now we're doing specialty paper, uh, but uh, it is quite impressive in itself. We're making over 60 different grades on that single machine. Uh, our competitors make one, rarely two. And uh, and so the, the capabilities, since we have a state-of-the-art advanced treatment uh, uh, or advanced paper uh facility uh, has given us that capability. Uh, We are a pulp and paper mill. You can have a pulp mill, you can have a paper mill, or you can have a pulp and paper mill. So we create our own pulp to make our end paper products. And so we have a lot of flexibility uh, in that in using different types of paper materials, even wood type materials. We manufacture our paper entirely from waste materials. Uh, We get residual materials from local sawmills in the form of waste wood chips. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in detail. Uh, And then we also do uh, recycling as well too. But since, you know, since we're a hundred plus years old, we've had to reinvent ourselves historically over all those period, that period of time. Uh, more recently to your, to your question, Hillary, uh, we've had some re- significant recent drivers that, that we've had to accommodate and, and, uh, essentially that's been the decline in newspapers. So everybody's moving towards electronics, computers, cell phones for their media. And so there's been a significant decline, decline in newspapers. Paper. So we have been, we in the recent past were a newsprint mill. Now again, like I said, we've transi- transitioned more to being in specialty papers, uh, and there's many many different varieties of papers, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit as well too. The, one of the biggest more recent shifts was due to COVID, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so within the past several years, there was a significant shift in consumer behavior. Uh, we were not going out to restaurants. We were using quick service restaurants. We were doing drive through. So there was a demand for uh, quick service type bags, uh, packaging for your food. Uh, And then the other thing is online shopping. Uh, We were not going out shopping. And so uh, we started doing all our shopping online. And so there was just this tremendous demand for packaging and packaging type materials. And so many mills actually shifted in that direction. And frankly, I don't see consumer behavior reverting back. Uh, A lot of people thought, found the convenience of online shopping was great. Hopefully we'll go back to restaurants again, but nonetheless, uh, in the meantime, uh, as you can see from some of the samples I brought, we do a lot of quick service uh, restaurant type packaging materials. And to your point about the the uh, tour, I, I really highly recommend that your listeners, if cap- if possible, come in for a mill tour. Uh, we have uh, pretty much an open policy, and they can contact me directly. And I, my you know my goal in life is to try to get everybody from the Spokane region through the mill at some point in time to be able to show them how impressive it is. So yeah, it really <clears throat> is impressive. And I actually grew up in Millwood. I'm a West Valley grad, and so that was the first time I had stepped into the mill, and it is just the history is incredible. Um, I can't believe it's been over a hundred years and it is locally owned, correct? It is. Uh, we're actually owned by the Coles family, uh, Coles Publishing, and uh, they you might know them for the Spokesman Review. In fact, uh, some of the myths that you asked me to dispel was one of those that people think that we're there primarily to provide paper for the Spokesman Review, which we do. We provide 100% of their paper, but overall they only represent about 1% of our overall paper production. The rest of it goes outside of Spokane and primarily outside 
out of Washington State as well, too. Okay. Hmm? Wonderful. That's really cool, Doug. I love how your company just adapted and overcame all the COVID crisis and everything and ran with it and found something, a niche that you can supply good paper and good product with for what everybody needs. That's wonderful. Yeah, and we, we actually did operate through COVID. Uh, we were considered an essential business, mm-hmm. one for communications papers to be able to communicate with everyone on the, you know, policies and things like that that changed within Washington. And of course, for the food contact or, you know, the food supply and things like that that were necessary as well, too. So we were an essential business through that and pretty much operated, you know, throughout that, throughout that entire period. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So, Doug, as the environmental manager, what kind of education and training did you have to get to perform all your wealth of duties? Okay. As I made mention, I'm a mechanical engineer, and your mm-hmm. listeners, of course, can't see my uh, gray and receding hair, so I will <laughs> date myself today. I uh, graduated in 1985, um, and this was it's interesting, the timing of that, because it was under the, after the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act that came out in the uh, 70s. And so when I was going to school, uh, there wasn't an environmental engineer engineering program. It was in its uh, infant stages. So we kind of had to invent the uh, the implementation of the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act industrially as we as we went. So had there been an environmental engineering program, I probably would have uh, would have gone in that direction instead of the mechanical. But my passion and interests were always in environmental. So uh, just I naturally through osmosis drifted in that direction. The engineering background gave me the technical understanding. Uh, what we do is very technical in nature. Uh, environmentally, not to mention legal and regulatory. And so those things you you just learned by the School of Hard Knocks. So frankly, it was the School of Hard Knocks that was my best teacher when it comes to all of this. And so that, gosh, I'm going on almost 40 years. And if I do the math correctly, <laughs> it's scary. Um, but, you know, again, I had that affinity for environmental issues. I mentioned previously, I got a lot of exposure on the air side, uh, regulatorily in the energy uh, field. And now with Inland Empire Paper, uh, kind of became somewhat a resident expert on on water side as well too uh you might notice i'm blessed with the gift of gab uh and i think uh, others might see that as a curse but uh we'll go with the gift and uh and so it's given me a capability of being able to take these very technical issues and um put them into layman's terms and and kind of help educate uh a wide range of people you know especially our legislators who are developing policies Mm -hmm. new policies on environmental side i work a lot with the legislature in order to help educate them on on the consequences or the benefits of what they're attempting to do from a policy standpoint. I would say the most important thing, though, uh, that I've learned through my, my long career is that coalition coalitions are very important to address these very difficult environmental issues. And um, it's important for me to walk in other people's shoes as you should walk in my shoes and understand our positions. And so working collectively uh, is, is I think, the, the most important facet, again, that I've learned. Work with a lot of coalitions uh, here in the community. We're working with the Spokane River Regional Toxics Task Force addressing the PCB issue. We had pretty much community-wide effort as well to solve the dissolved oxygen issues etc. And so um, never hardly work uh, solo. You know, I always try to work within others because it's important to have the sharing of other ideas. Uh, that was one of the benefits of being an engineer and work with en- other engineers is there's countless ways to build a mousetrap and mine isn't always the best one. So that uh, that is an important aspect for me. Yeah, that's a great, mm-hmm. great message. I love that. Mm-hmm. I was about to say, I love that. You had your dedication to cause right there. Mm-hmm. 40 years in the field, still going at it strong. strong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Doug, I'm curious. Um, 
if there was ever like when you really first got interested in sustaining natural resources, was it anything from growing up or childhood or anything like that? Yeah, you kind of nailed it. It was as early in my childhood as I can possibly remember. Uh, this is going to sound counterintuitive, but uh, I was born and lived in the city of Pittsburgh in my early days of life, uh, but I was actually raised in the woods. So uh, my father, I have to give the most credit for that. Uh, he um, pretty much exposed us to everything there was nature-wise. While all the other kids were going to Disneyland, and SeaWorld and all these other exotic places, we spent our vacations always in the woods, uh, you know, camping, hiking, hunting, fishing, skiing, you name it, outdoors-wise, uh, my father exposed us to that. And so very early on, he actually was a scout leader and things like that. So he he really did a lot of the educating as to the, you know, uh, the benefits that we gained from Mother Nature and the importance of sustainability uh, of those natural resources. So he planted that seed very, very early on in my life. Um, interestingly enough, growing up in Pittsburgh was also somewhat of a catalyst because, again, dating myself, I grew up in Pittsburgh in the 60s and 70s, and it was called the Smoky City uh, because of all the steel mills that were there. And I remember one day my dad took us to, went, we went camping and I looked up at the moon and the moon was white. And I said, dad, what's wrong with the moon? And he says, what do you mean? I says, it's white. And in Pittsburgh, it was always orange from the smog. Yeah. And so that was kind of a, it's something I remember from my childhood. And it was like, wow, that just doesn't seem right. And so that's kind of what launched my career. You know, I thought, you know, I knew there was a better way to do things. And so that was kind of one of the reasons I got into the energy industry as well. So I knew we could do things better from an air emission standpoint, and we can. Uh, and so all of those things that I've done on the energy side did exactly that. I don't see many orange moons anymore. So <laughs> maybe there was a, maybe I was part of that, that, uh, results. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, speaking of the woods, um, obviously, you know, paper has to come from trees. And so I'm wondering if you can just talk to us a little bit about the forestry department at the mill um, and the land that you guys own and operate to source these fiber materials for the paper. Sure. I think one of the first things I would like to do is dispel the myth that, you know, uh, we do, of course, use wood to, to manufacture paper products, but uh, we're not cutting down trees in order to make uh, paper. And the reason behind that is trees have too much value as a lumber product, as a wood product first. Uh, so uh, this is one of the major circles of sustainability for IEP. Uh, we have two, and I'll talk about that. One's the wood basket, and the other one is the recycled paper. Uh, but we own about 120,000 acres here in eastern Washington and in northern Idaho. And uh, we have about 60,000 acres in each. Uh, we harvest about 32 million board feet a year off of those properties. And what we're doing with that is supporting the local forest products industries. So we're taking those trees and selling those to the local forest products companies. They are in turn turning them into a wood product that we use to build our homes and structures, etc. And you can only make so many rectangular boards out of a round tree. And so the leftover material, uh, which could be considered a waste product in the past, you know, they would have consumed them in a combustion system where they would build up in huge piles uh, is actually a commodity product for them now. We take that uh, those uh, residual wood chips and use that as a virgin wood fiber source in manufacturing our paper. 
we can process up to about 475 tons per day uh, of those wood chips. And again, from the scalability standpoint, no picture's worth a thousand words. So that tour, as you saw, you kind of really get an idea on what 475 tons per day really means. Um, One thing I'd like to say, though, is I'm not the resident expert on our forest side of things, and uh, I'm probably going to get chastised for trying to talk like one here. Uh, But uh, that story in itself is amazing. Uh, There is a lot of science that goes into forest management. uh, And uh, we have a really fun forest manager who would be, I would highly recommend for a future podcast. uh, And he could go into the weeds per se on on talking about our forestry operations. But it it is very impressive. uh, And I think you could spend an an easy uh, podcast time with, with him going over that. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely have to get him in here to tell that story for sure. I still think we should get the two of them together. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. We're thinking about taking our show on the road. You there know, you go. Comedy show. <laughs> so now going through the tour, I was standing next to those huge blocks of, of paper. How much paper does the mill collect each day and where does it come from? Okay, so that uh, maybe a, a better way to put that is that um, it's what we process uh, in a day. So we can process mm-hmm. up to about 350 tons per day of uh, what we call ONP, old newsprint. Um, uh, we, we make our paper from a lot of different types of uh, source paper materials. It used to just be old newsprint because of that decline. We've had to shift our uh, sources to what's called uh, shredded office papers and uh, to OCC. I use a lot of acronyms to make sure you keep me in check uh, on or old corrugated cardboard, et cetera. Okay. But you touched on, Dwayne, the other major circle of sustainability for us, uh, which is on the paper side of things. And so we recycle paper from as far as 1,500 miles away from our facility. Uh, and the reason behind that is that's about the distance of our primary customer base. So uh, we own our own shipping firms as well, too. Uh, and so in order to not have an empty backhaul wherever shipping our paper two, we bring paper back then after it's been used and consumed and recycled back to our facility. So there's your circle of sustainability. We're Mm -hmm. producing a paper product, sending it to our customers who are publishing on that or whether it be paper bags or newsprint or some graphic materials and uh, then the consumer uses it, uh, it gets recycled and then we bring it back to our facility and do that all over again. That's pretty amazing, that whole circle right there, closing all the gaps, making sure you're not wasting any fuel, any time. That's awesome. What is the biggest challenge the mill faces when it comes to collecting this paper? Uh, And I'm assuming when you're collecting this paper and it's recycled, you're going to collect trash as well? Uh, you saw that. Yes. <laughs> so you saw it firsthand. Uh, it wasn't always that way. Uh, when so we put our integrated recycling facility in a facility in in 1991, and we did that in response to state laws that were changing at the time. Uh, and primarily, I think the, the the catalyst for that was California. All paper produced in the state of California had to have a specific recycle content. And since we were a West Coast mill, in order to share in that market, uh, we decided to install that recycle facility in 1991. And so at that time, we got paper. Uh, if you're, you're probably both too young to remember, but we used to actually segregate our paper, plastics, metals, glass, all recyclables, and they were collected separately. And, uh, and so therefore, it was a very clean source of material. Then over time, we kind of noticed that things were starting to get a lot of contamination. And so uh, what happened was, is there was a move towards single stream recycling. Uh, we used to call it sorted, now it's single stream. And so with single stream, we all 
probably know we have the single blue bin or green bin that we throw mm-hmm. all of our recyclables into. And so unfortunately, uh, that's all done through mechanics now. And, and they try to, after you put it together, then try to resort it back out again. And so we end up with a lot of cross contamination and paper and plastics have a lot of similarities. And so the most, the, the, the most significant part of our contamination is associated with plastics. Um, and so we get as much as today up 10 to 20 percent of the paper that we bring in those bales that you saw that we bring in are non-paper materials ah. and so a huge amount of uh of trash or contamination that we have to deal with not to mention we have to buy 20 percent more paper in order to be able to supplant that yield loss we call it and uh, we've had to put in significant uh in um, modifications to our facility in order to deal with getting that material out of there so you have the manpower cost you have the maintenance cost um, uh, we have the shipping of that trash material and the disposal of that mash uh, that trash material. Um, one of the things I like to preach as the environmental manager is, you know, we are beneficially reutilizing waste materials uh, when manufacturing our processes. Well, people have to understand that there's also waste materials that are generated during our processes as well, too. But we try not to look at those as waste materials. We try to look at those as how can we beneficially reutilize those. And this is one that kind of bothers me because these are materials that should have been recycled in the first place. But we're fortunate enough to have the waste energy plant here in Spokane. And since it's plastics, it's relatively high energy value. So it is being beneficial reutilized most of it uh, by uh, being consumed in the waste energy plant and providing us with power for our homes and businesses. Mm-hmm. So one thing that you shared on our tour that was fascinating that I didn't know was kind of the lifespan of uh, paper fiber. Mm-hmm. And so can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, you can only use a paper fiber about seven times. Okay. And so if uh, you tear a piece of paper and you kind of look at the edges, fuzzy edges there, you can kind of see there's, uh, you know, that, that fuzziness is really the paper fiber itself. And that's what gives paper uh, its strength. It, mm-hmm. It's, you know, I use analogies a lot and it's kind of like a feather. And so it's the intertwining of those feathers that gives paper its strength. Well, as we bring it back and recycle it over and over again, um, it can it gets worn down and ends up basically as a stick almost, if you will. Uh, and so it ends up coming out of our systems as a, a waste product then at that point. And there I am using that term waste product yeah. again. And so uh, it is not a waste product to us. It, so you th- we always think, okay, what can we use? We're generating, this is actually what brought me to, to uh, IEP in the first place is that uh, in 1991, when they installed that facility, they knew they were going to generate uh, a lot of this waste material, uh, 125 tons per day, actually. Uh, and so they came to our company and said, hey, uh, what do you think you can do with this? And we were able to find a method for being able to consume it in a very specialized energy system. Uh, we burned that and actually produced power or steam from uh, from that process. It's reduced our dependency on natural gas by about 15%. And so there's something that would have been a tremendous landfill liability that we've actually turned into uh, a benefit through energy. So, Wow. Yeah. I'd love to hear that. That means y'all were leaders in the field of... Uh of green environmental yeah everything yeah well we've been we've been doing green a lot more before it was actually a fashionable word yes. yeah you know, it's, it's part of our business model from and if we're keeping up with the beginning. times we gotta say the trendy yeah right? <laughs> there you go <laughs> so taking a tour of your facility one of the most advanced facilities out there i mean i was just amazed with how much y'all do 
Can you tell us about the products that you, the paper products that you mill today? You bet. Uh, so as I mentioned, you we've had to reinvent ourselves over time, and so not that long ago we were considered a newsprint mill, and that's primarily what our product was. Uh, and then because of the decline in the newsprint industry and the increase in all these other demand requirements that I mentioned with uh, COVID and and the decline in the newsprint, we've had to uh, to diversify. And as part of that, we make over sixty different grades of paper on one single paper machine. As I mentioned, our competitors make one, two, and rarely three. Uh, so it puts us in a very uh, interesting position. So your competitors do up to three and you do 60? 60. Wow. That's correct. Because it's blowing it out yep. of the water. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, when I say when I say it was different grades, uh, what, what does that mean? So a different mm-hmm. grade means it could be anything from a different weight. So uh, you're both probably too young to remember directory, which was the yellow pages and white pages. Oh, gosh. Whatever <laughs> happened to those? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, your phones. Yeah. yeah, yeah all that yep. information is right there. It's an amazing, powerful tool. But that was very thin sheet. You could almost see through it. And mm-hmm. so that's like a 20-pound sheet. We can make uh, 20-pound to 60-pound and everything in between. And 60 is almost a very stiff, almost like cardboard-type material. Uh, different brightnesses. Newsprint was the lowest grade of brightness. So it's like a 57 bright. We can make all the way up to We're even exceeding 80 brightness now, which is about the brightness of our 8.5 by 11 printing sheets. And everything in between. Uh, we can do all kinds of different colors, uh, green, peach, pink. Uh, you might not be familiar with the Financial Times, but it's an international publication. If you go to the, um, uh, usually see them in the airports, it's a very interesting peach-colored uh, paper that they printed on. We're the sole sp- source provider of that in North America. So if you happen nice. to go to Montreal, Canada, and you pick up a Financial Times, that paper was produced here in Spokane by Inland Empire Paper Company. And as you see in front of you, I know our listeners can't see, but uh, you can see a lot of brown materials now and so we've been moving into the brown packaging uh brown bags brown packaging materials uh this is a very interesting one as of late it's an embossed type material and that's uh you know we have your get your fancy candies uh and you have that nice little soft cushy thing that they sit on or on top and uh essentially that's another product that we immediately thought of seize candies (laughs) there (laughs) you go i I don't want to throw any product names out there (laughs) (laughs) um but uh, mostly, if you look at these papers in front of you, you can see a lot of them have printing on them. So because we were a newsprint type uh, paper machine, we can produce a very high quality product for printing. So we don't actually even know all the different variations of paper use, what our paper is used for downstream. We sell it to uh, you know a publisher or a consumer of some sort. And they do all kinds of things with it. Some of the things I am familiar with, of course, is newspapers, advertisements, uh, magazines, books, you know, so your, your dime store novels, uh, which mo- most everybody doesn't use anymore either, <laughs> uh, but school books as well too, uh, wrapping paper. Uh, food tray liners. If you go to your quick service restaurant and we're back in there again and you get your tray and it has that liner and you usually have some advertising on it, that as well too. Voter pamphlets is a big one as well. Uh, and then the recent transition to this lightweight packaging type material and these browns are the quick service uh, restaurant bags, uh, packaging for shipping, packing and, and that embossed material and masking paper for painting. And I mean, on and on and on and on. It's just seems like countless uses uh, for it. 
mm-hmm. little bit of everything. Yes, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and your distribution is um, just here in North America? Primarily, Primarily. yeah. Uh, We've dabbled a little bit internationally, but we can't fulfill uh, the requirements of the demand in North America. In fact, uh, we're almost the only mill of our kind uh, in the United States anymore. Uh, There's some competition out of Canada. Uh, We used to be just considered a West Coast mill, but there has been a decline in the paper industry or a shift, if you will, towards paper and packaging, uh, packaging type materials. Um, But we're getting such demand now from the East Coast because they can't get supply because of the mills shifting away from newsprint and advertising type materials. And so uh, we can't make enough paper for the demand that there is right now, uh, unfortunately. But uh, so we don't have to really look very far. Shipping is always an issue as well, too. Uh, Shipping across seas versus, you know, shipping down the road uh, is what we'd rather do. Right. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's just incredible. Dwayne, did you have any idea that this was all just right over here in Little Millwood? I did not. Honestly, I've passed it a bunch of times, just kind of looked and, oh, yeah, there's a building. And then we did our tour and I was like, oh, wow, there's a there's a building. Yeah. And it has a lot in it. Yeah. And it's very nondescript. Uh, many people that are from the neighborhood, I just gave a tour to uh, the West Valley School District staff and they've lived, most of them have lived there all their life as well, too. And they work there every day. Had no idea. Uh, because all you see is this anachronistic uh, looking brick building there. You don't really see all the, the processes and the technology and everything that's inside. So mm-hmm. once again, I'll put a plug in for that tour. Definitely. <laughs> come and see us and experience it firsthand. Yeah. And I think one of the coolest things was it was so clean. Oh, like my god. Everything gosh. about it was yes. clean. There was not just, I, in my head, I think of a paper mill might just have a bunch of waste everywhere, but. Yeah, we do get a lot of uh, we have a lot of pride in our facility. Uh, we have I have had other paper mill representatives come through and they're surprised at the cleanliness of our place compared to theirs as well, too. So hopefully we're a shining example of how they should operate their facilities. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Rep in Spokane. Well, yes. yeah, <laughs> exactly. well, and, you, you know, this brings up a great point is how many people do go past the mill, you know, on their daily commute and have lived, you know, there in Millwood their whole lives practically, mm-hmm. but don't really have a a great understanding for what is going on behind those walls. And I think there's probably a lot of misconceptions about paper mills. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see this big building, you see, you know, steam or stuff coming out. Yeah. Yeah. Occasional odors. (laughs) Yeah. And so um, you've debunked a few of the myths already, but Mm -hmm. what are some of the other you know, yep. myths that you want to definitely want to hit on that cutting down the tree one, you know, cause yeah. a lot of people think that we're cutting down trees from our forest lands, pushing them through one end and pulling paper out the other. And certainly we've already talked about that. That's, that's, uh, that's not the case. Um, the uh, stacks you hit on, which is very good because you see a lot of steam coming mm-hmm. out of those stacks. Uh, when we manufacture our paper and you saw this, it goes on the paper machine at 99% water, 1% pulp. And that's how you're able to form such a thin film. Uh, but when you hold a piece of paper in your hand, it's 8 to 9% water. And so we have to remove 90% of that water. And as part of that is evaporation. And so what you're actually seeing in every case that's coming out of those stacks is steam. And so it is not uh, pollution, which we've heard many times before. Right. It is strictly water vapor. Uh, and so that's probably one of the bigger ones to, to dispel. Uh, our odor is not from our, you know, and, and again, we do a pretty good job, I think, of controlling that. It's not 100%. And the reason behind it, it's not from our processes. There's a lot of other paper mills that are renowned for their odors. Uh, there's some uh, rhymes that are used to describe them even. <laughs> I'm not going to use them because they'll call my partners out. But um, 
it's not coming from our paper making processes. We're considered a mechanical mill. Those other mills are chemical type mills and uh, they use sulfur based chemicals and that creates the strong odors from those mills. Uh, ours, uh, we're strictly mechanical. So we're processing through recycling. We're processing through machinery to break down the wood chips. Where our odor actually comes from is uh, no good deed goes unpunished, I like to say. So when uh, I got there about 18, almost 20 years ago, uh, we were around 5 million gallons per day of water discharge now today we're about two and a half million gallons so part of the part of my mission was to actually get the water reduction uh, because i knew what was forthcoming with these very stringent uh, limitations we were gonna have to put in some uh, very expensive technologies and these technologies are going to be expensive to maintain as well too so the less we had to do that the better so i use the example of uh, filling your bathtub up with water you can take a bath in it every day Uh, you can add water to it but you can't pull the drain plug and so uh, do that over and over again and how long is it going to be till you actually start building up some uh, pretty ugly looking water and pretty nasty smelling water so that's kind of what we're dealing with but um, we're doing a pretty good job we just have to over oxygenate and and so we're trying to keep that to a minimum and be good neighbors overall uh let's see so the other thing is uh energy uh we are one of the highest green energy users especially in washington state washington state paper mills have uh the lowest carbon footprint of any mills i believe in the world uh and that is due to one is we utilize a lot of biomass to produce our energy and one is we live in washington state which uh happens to be one of the largest uh hydro producers uh in the country as well too and so uh we have a very low carbon footprint and so uh one of the things that we like to do in, in educating the legislators for example is be careful of what we do with carbon regulations and things like that because we don't want want to chase these industries out of Washington um, because if, if paper isn't made here, it's going to be made somewhere else. And if it's made somewhere else, it's going to be done with a higher carbon footprint. We need to think beyond locally and think more uh, um, entire, you know, the entire ecosystem. Right. Uh, and so that's another important aspect of it. So, um, and other than that, I did cover the, the Coles company mm-hmm. as well too. And so uh, that's another thing is the, you know, we are actually providing paper, just well beyond uh, just the Coles company as well, too. I think those are the primary myths that yeah. I wanted to hit on. <clears throat> so I'm kind of talking, switching gears to kind of more of that technical um, engineering side of things. Tell us about some of the ways in which you're improving um, the efficiency in your processes and optimizing the use of those raw materials. Okay. Yeah, we're really good at that, uh, actually. <laughs> and you saw examples of that. Uh, we've actually reduced our dependency on natural gas by about 90%. Uh, And we've done that through the uh, installation of the biomass energy Mm -hmm. system that I was responsible for back in 1991. And one of our more recent additions was replacing uh, 1960s uh, uh, thermomechanical pulping systems. You asked me to get technical. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) But basically, uh, they're machines that take the wood chips and break them down into pulp fiber. And there's a lot of energy involved with that. These new system, the new system that we put in uh, actually has two 35,000 horsepower motors associated with 
able to, to break down uh, wow. those wood chips. Uh, and we're using green wood chips. Uh, we don't want the dark gray. Uh, when they get older, they lose their fiber quality, etc. So uh, the chips that we're using that we got from the local sawmills were trees not that long ago. And so trees are about 50 to 60 percent water. That's why you can't just cut down a tree and throw it in your fireplace and burn it because it has moisture uh, associated with it. So when we hit it, the uh, chips with that energy, that 35,000 horsepower, it flashes that water to steam. Well, in the past, in the 19, well, prior to the installation of this new system, which went in in 2010, approximately, uh, if you came to our facility, we had what were called atmospheric refiners and all that steam was just leaving our facility. In fact, people thought we were the cloud factory. This yeah. is where clouds came from. Again, water vapor, not pollution. Uh, and so uh, this new system, we're actually capturing that and recovering that energy. And so that reduced our dependency on natural gas by about 75% and reduced our carbon footprint by 32,000 tons per year. Uh, A huge amount. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, So much so that uh, Governor Inslee recognized us and we got the governor's award for uh, our efforts on carbon uh, reductions. Uh, So it was a a very uh, um, excellent project for us. And, you know, Going back to kind of, you know, giving credit to our, the Coles company because this investment environmental is from top down. Yeah. Uh, they're the ones who are investing and making us one of the most modern facilities uh, in the world uh, and investing in these environmental benefits that are associated with it as well. So you said 32,000 tons. Yes. Who's the next in line with what kind of number? <laughs> or maybe not who, but what was the next so, number? So I don't know. I, I went to go get the award and there was, gosh, you know, a hundred people there and uh, people were going up and getting their awards and they were changing to LED light bulbs. And I think the most I had ever heard was maybe a ton. Oh, wow. uh, and so, yeah, when, when the governor Inslee gave us our award and said, and these guys reduced 32,000 tons per year, you could hear the, uh, you could hear the wind go out of the room. <laughs> it was, it was, that that impressive well so congratulations that is just amazing thank you and you 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 know back to your point you're saying improving efficiency and processes and raw materials uh we talked a little bit about um well, one of the things is waste materials, okay? I mentioned uh, taking the sludge, that's the paper that can no longer be used as a paper fiber, yes. and it becomes out as a waste product that we're turning into energy through the fluidized bed energy system that I was responsible for in 1991. Well, after burning that, you turned that into ash, and so now you've created another waste product, okay? So now what do you have? You have another waste product. We produce about close to 20 tons per day of that. And so what are, what are the, some of the things you can do with the ash? Well, you can make concrete out of it. It makes concrete stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have tried using it in uh, composting uh, and the latest uh, opportunity is with the Palouse. There's a soil acidification problem in the Palouse due to farming and over fertilization and the pH has gotten very acidic down there and almost to the point where so they can't grow crops in certain areas. Right. We're working collaboratively, collaboratively with Washington State University uh, and they're doing uh, studies that show that the application of the fly ash that we're producing from that actually stabilizes the pH of the soil, reduces aluminum toxicity, increases germination rates of the seeds, and increases the yield that the farmers are getting uh, for their crops. Uh, so there's a tremendous benefit potential there as well, too. So we're still working with them, and but we're on the cusp of actually making some really good things happen down there as well. Well, and you know, this is right up our alley, <clears throat> talking about the there Palouse and the farmers on the Palouse. Yeah. When did... Um 
When did you guys start the, these trials with WSEO? Oh, this goes back uh, several years. We were originally working with a firm that uh, produced biochar. So we were doing a biochar okay. fly ash combination that goes back. Uh, and actually, it's it's one of our sister companies uh, that produces the biochar using wheat straw. Okay. Uh, and so we're taking uh, not only the biochar, but combining it with with the ash as well, too. So that all occurred all within the past seven years or so. And so wow. uh, we have the ability to do fly ash, fly ash with biochar. We can provide different products for different end uses as well, too. So oh, it's well, exciting. Yeah, that's very exciting. <laughs> Definitely mm-hmm. keep us posted on all of that Absolutely information. Absolutely will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pass it on to our farmers. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, so talk to us about kind of the some of the current water regulations um, on water quality and how you make sure that you guys are meeting those at the mill. Yeah, uh, that's my biggest challenge. Ever since I walked through the door at, at Inland Park Paper Company, uh, there was a need for someone to be able to address uh, these concerns. Uh, when I came aboard, I was quite surprised at the standards. They're, they're the most stringent, certainly, I believe, in the country uh, on nutrients. They're not your standard pollutants you would think about uh, it's phosphorus, nitrogen, and the organics that remain in our water. And the levels since Washington State, uh, these are mainly driven by Washington State rules and laws. Uh, EPA sets a standard, sets certain requirements. States are allowed to adopt something. They can't, they have to do at least as stringent as what EPA is uh, recommended, but they can go more stringent. And Washington State is one of those states where we're actually dealing with more stringent uh, water quality standards. And so uh, most of the challenge that I've been dealing with since I walked through the door was in an effort to try to meet these standards that had never been met before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly not in the pulp and paper industry. You know, most of the technologies that are developed are developed for our municipal treatment plants uh, because, you know, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but most of the percentage of all treatment plants are municipal handling our, our domestic water. And so applying it to a pulp and paper, our water is significantly different. And so it just created a whole different uh, concern. So we've tested over 30 different technologies uh, in my time here, trying to find what I thought was going to be a silver bullet. Uh, didn't turn out that way. We found out there was a lot of other things that were needed, uh, process changes within our facility. We need some regular regulatory tools because we can't quite get there with technology. And then the technology improvements, and uh, they have been many uh, that we've made. Uh, and and I, I could go into great detail about all of the technologies, just let you know there were a lot of them. But um, the, we have the most sophisticated uh, pulp and paper mill, wastewater treatment system in the pulp and paper mill industry in the world. And I guess the uh, the crown jewel of all of that is the ultrafiltration membrane system that we've put in place. And essentially, that is a microscopic filter. You have to look under a microscope to see it. Uh, the pore size of those uh, membranes are 7,500 times smaller than the width of human hair. Uh, it removes viruses. It removes bacteria. Essentially, it's allowing water molecules to pass through and pretty much uh, nothing else. And so, in fact, in, in I think almost all cases, in most cases, we're putting water back into the river that's cleaner than the river itself, which it should be. Mm-hmm. You know? And so that's, that's pretty much uh, where we're at today. And talk about another highlight of the tour was seeing those membrane filters, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, those were just incredible to see. Yeah, there was 10,000 fibers in each one of those little modules. So again, a picture's worth a thousand words. Exactly. 
So talk to us a little bit more about the water cycle at the mill and the process it goes through before that water goes back into our Spokane Mm -hmm. River. Yeah. So again, uh, we talked a little bit about water conservation, reclamation and reuse. One of the first you know, mandates I had when I came on board. And so uh, we've reduced our water by 50%, uh, which is, is pretty amazing yeah. in itself. Wow. Uh, we super oxygenate the water with many different types of technologies. Uh, it kickstarts our treatment system and also helps us control odor. Uh, and then I think what you might be referring to is a really cool biological system, which is pretty similar between all treatment plants. We use mother nature wherever we can in order to be able to treat water. And in this case, we're using bacteria and micro animals that like to use our effluent as food. Uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're processing wood waste. And so there is a bacteria to, and, and micro animals that absolutely love our uh, wood waste organics. And so uh, show it to them and they will come and there they are. And so we don't add them. They're just naturally, they naturally exist there. So we just nurture them, if you will, uh-huh. as we call them affectionately our little bugs. Uh, oh, you have so. a cooler term for them. Come on. <laughs> well, there, there are bugs. <laughs> uh, and um, you know, as far as nurturing them, you know, they're no different than you or I. They require oxygen. So that's, that's all the oxygen you saw additions, spinning discs and humming blowers right. and fountains going up in the air and things like that. And uh, they need the food source. The food source is the organics, the wood waste in our, in our water. And then interestingly enough, trees are deficient in phosphorus and nitrogen. You heard that term before, just a little while ago. Those are one of the things we're being regulated on. However, those uh, bacteria and microanimals need sufficient amounts of uh, nutrients. It's like us taking vitamins. If we're deficient in vitamins, we're going to get anemic. Same thing with them. So we actually have to add nitrogen and phosphorus so they can do their job in removing organics. And then we got to remove the nitrogen and phosphorus to very low levels on the other end. It's kind of like the never-ending story. And so, uh, or job security in my case. (laughs) (laughs) And then I talked about the uh, the crown jewel, the tertiary treatment. That was we've only had that in place for about two years, and so uh, we're still working on optimizing all of that. But uh, again, the most advanced treatment system uh, in our industry. I'm being given presentations uh, on a worldwide basis because I think we just happen to be at the tip of the spear. Uh, mm-hmm. This is probably coming to a venue near you. Uh, we're kind of setting setting the precedent in our little community here in Spokane, and uh, and so ultimately, I think that will be the next level of treatment everywhere you know that's great and speaking on water you use steam to offset your natural gas use can you tell us a little bit about that yeah um so two of the projects we've already talked about one is the fluidized bed combustion system that's the one where we're taking uh the the waste materials in the form of the paper sludge and turning that into uh steam energy mm-hmm. uh, which has offset our natural gas demand by 15 percent. and the other one was the thermomechanical pulping system the uh refiners that take the wood chips and break those down and we're recovering that uh water as it flashes to steam so uh just again this is just kind of uh, a re- paid you know to what we talked about before but reduced our natural gas dependency by 90 percent and reduced our carbon footprint by 32,000 tons per year and so that steam that's produced is actually going to the paper machine to help us remove that 99 percent water uh down to the eight or nine percent uh, that you find in a final sheet of paper so that's kind of the steam cycle in itself mm-hmm. all right mm-hmm. <clears throat> Everything you're talking about is just so impressive. And again, I just big time snaps and claps to everything you guys are doing. Um, 
What are just some of the other things that IAP um, is doing just to uplift your mission of being good environmental stewards? Yeah, and I think I'd mentioned this previously, but uh, we are a privately owned uh, company. Uh, We're one of the only privately owned paper mills in the United States, uh, and that is uh, by the Coles Company. And again, it's this top-down corporate philosophy of environmental stewardship uh, that uh, they're investing in us, and and they've supported all of these efforts. I mean, you think about all of the things that we've done between the heat recovery projects. We didn't have to do that. Um, and so that investment uh, by them, uh, again, shows great stewardship on their part. Uh, a lot of the things that we do just make good business sense also. Um, We added the heat recovery system because it made sense to reduce our natural gas by 75%. We weren't driven by carbon reduction emissions or anything along those lines. That was a benefit that occurred from reducing our dependency on natural gas by by uh, 75%. So a lot of these things are, are, are good business decisions, but they have the environmental benefit. Again, we didn't have to add the heat recovery system at, at, at significant cost, but we did. And look at all of the improvements that we've made in our wastewater treatment system. Uh, I, I don't even know what the sum is that's been invested in it to make us the most advanced treatment system in the world. But, you know, uh, our our corporate ownership could have easily made the decision that it wasn't worth the investment uh, to try to meet the most stringent effluent limitations in the country, but they did. Uh, and so we're still standing. Uh, the newest news, or, you know, the newest new, news, I keep saying newsprint, but I get away from that. The newest paper machine in North America of its kind, making specialty paper products. How about that? Uh, as well, too. That was a very significant investment. And had they not made that investment, uh, you would not have been there for the tour. And I wouldn't be here giving that podcast today. Uh, uh, so uh, they are f- phenomenal stewards, and, and that corporate philosophy, that trickle down, is uh, I, I'm glad I could. I, there's only so many people could work for it. It has to have uh, that type of um, that uh, investment, if you will, into environmental stewardship. And so I'm pretty proud to be able to work with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You shared a really cool fact about just how much paper you guys produce. You know, via the day, via the week. A year. Um, tell us about just how much paper you guys are producing. Okay. So uh, we produce on average, well, we try to, it depends on the day, but 525 tons per day. Wow. And I know that's hard to get your mind wrapped around unless you're there to see it. Yeah. You see the big jumbo rolls that we create. Those are so cool. Yeah. So and, uh, cool. They're uh, 50,000 pounds or 25 tons. And we make one of those every hour. Uh, I try to use analogies just to, so people can understand what we do. But um, you could, uh, with the paper we create, in a day, you could go from here to Spokane in the, or I'm sorry, here to San Diego in a 24 hour period and cover the highway with paper. Uh, we go around the earth every 17 days. Wow. Um, so again, f- for example, so, oh um, but uh, it's, it's pretty impressive. And we got some good photos of us standing next Perfect. to those roles for social Post media. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, this is just incredible. Um, Again, to all of our listeners, if you do have the opportunity to go and get a tour, I mean, definitely jump on that because it is just amazing to see what's happening just in our own backyards and just the incredible impact you guys um, are doing for our environment and just all of the positive ecological benefits that you guys, um, you know, are fulfilling. 
Um, so I want you to also just talk about the economic impact that the mill has on Spokane. Mm-hmm. We've been very significant uh, over the 110 years. Think about all the families that have been employed by uh, our company, and it's generational. We have generations of families that, that stretch back. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're in the fifth generation, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but we pro- we've been providing above living wage jobs for uh, regional families over that 110-year period. In fact, I think we have one of the highest blue collar paying jobs in the region. So um, if you have a hardworking uh, son or daughter da- out there, send them our way. <laughs> you know, we're, we're suffering what everybody else is suffering with, you know, employment and retention and things like that. And as we talked about, you know, we are the school. You don't just go find a paper maker uh, out on the street and you can't just go to a school and say, hey, we want a wet end operator or whatever have you. We are the school and you learn from the from the bottom up. And so uh, we're always looking for good employees. So I'm putting a plug in there for HR department. Love it. Uh, We are uh, one of Spokane counties and certainly the city of Millwood's largest taxpayers. Uh, And um, EWU, Eastern Washington University, did an economic study. We probably need to redo it uh, because it was uh, done in 2006. But at that time, uh, they found that we were responsible for about 600 direct and indirect jobs for the community. And that uh, we're responsible for about $300 million of economic impact to into the Spokane economy. And what the economists really like about that is these are new dollars that are coming into our community. Uh, and so, as I mentioned earlier, only about 1% of our paper is staying here in Spokane with the Spokesman Review. Uh, 99% is going outside of Spokane and, and even outside, most of it's going outside of Washington. So that's new dollars coming into our community, not, uh, you know, me going to get a haircut and then my barber going and getting gas and the gas station tenant going and buying groceries, you know, that's recirculated dollars. So this is new money coming into our economy. So it has a pretty significant impact. How many employees does the mill employ right now? Interestingly enough, I think I asked you this question as you walked through the facility uh, to, to determine how many people it actually takes to run that mill. Uh, it's certainly a lot different today than it was uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago before mm-hmm. computers and uh, technology came along. And uh, interestingly enough, I hear numbers. In fact, I had asked our, our friends at the West Valley School District, and I got 30, 50, whatever have you, per shift. Uh, it's 13 people, 13 operators that actually operate that entire facility. If you go there on a Saturday or Sunday, you'll find 13 operators there. And that's just due to uh, automation. Uh, there's, you saw it, there's literally millions of moving parts. Mm-hmm. And so having computers control all, all of that is very important uh, and has reduced the amount of workforce that's necessary to, to do that. So we have 130 overall to answer your question. And that includes everything from forestry to transportation to office staff, engineering, uh, all of our labor force uh, as well, uh, which were a union labor force. And so we have, and you know, I say 13 operators, you still have support staff there of mechanics, millwrights, electricians, instrumentation and control. So there's support staff as well, but 13 people can operate that entire facility that you saw, which to me wow. just is, it blows me away as an engineer even. It's uh, absolutely when you mind see it. blowing. Mm-hmm. Mind blowing. <laughs> so, well, Doug, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. We mm-hmm. know that you have lots of moving parts and lots of things that you're overseeing over at the meal. You guys are doing a fantastic, incredible job. Um, it just blows me away. Um, what's next for the environmental team at IEP? <sighs> You shouldn't have stopped me so soon. 
that's actually quite a long conversation and I'll, I'll maybe try to sum it up as quickly as possible. But I think the biggest thing that we're faced with right now is trying to unwind this uh, PCB paradox. And I don't know if I'd talked to you about that when you were there before or not. PCBs are uh, polychlorinated by phenols uh, and they were a man-made substance that was created, uh, you know, early in the 19th, 20th century. And uh, we all, you know, I, I use the example, they were fantastic chemicals that were created. And I use the example of imagine putting oil in your car and never changing it. Uh, that is what PCBs did for industry. Uh, and so they were used in transformers, they were used in mechanical equipment, etc. cetera. And, uh, um, but their persistence was also part of their downfall as well too, because they don't break down. Uh, they stay in the environment, uh, they bioaccumulate, and they're also determined to be toxic as well too, They're called PBTs. And so, uh, EPA recognized that in the 1970s and in, in 1979, they banned the manufacturer. You remember DDT probably, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Eagles eggs and things like that. Well, this, they banned PCBs, the manufacturer of PCBs in 1979 under the Toxic Substance Control Act. So that's, that's great. So why are we talking about it today? Well, EPA recognized that there was, uh, chemical manufacturing processes that could create PCBs inadvertently. Uh, they're not making them on purpose, not adding them, um, but uh, they can be produced when they're manufacturing certain things. And lo and behold, one of those things that happens to be manufactured using uh, or can create inadvertently generated PCBs are inks and pigments. And you see this really cool yellow ink here yeah on that well uh pigment yellow number uh well not pigment pig, the uh pcb 11 is associated with uh yellow pigments and so um I, iep does not create pcbs we don't generate pcbs we're getting them as a consequence of this what we call the tosca allowance tosca is the toxic substance control act and they have an allowance in there of 50 parts per million uh that they allow for these pigment manufacturers in order to be able to manufacture that product. Well, the standard that we're being held to is parts per quadrillion. Uh, and that standard is 7 billion times higher. So the, the, the allowance, the task allowance is 7 billion times higher than the standard they're asking us to meet. So we don't, we're not, like I said, we're not making these things. We're getting them as a consequence of some environmental regulation mm -hmm. that allows them. And then we're, being held responsible for the cleanup of that uh, down to that low level. You know, there's, there's many threats to recycling. Uh, we talked about the contamination issues. Uh, and so those contamination, it's actually more expensive for us to produce pulp fiber from recycled paper than it is from virgin wood fiber. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we're faced with this, this PCB concern. The, the regulating agencies don't want us to uh, stop recycling because the benefits that we have of that is we're bringing in those inks and pigments. They're coming in with the recycled paper products, but we're removing them in our treatment system. In fact, we're removing 99.99% of of the PCBs that come in into our system. And then we're thermally destroying them in that fluidized bed combustion system. So we're getting completely out of the ecosystem. If we stop recycling, 
what's going to happen. We haven't solved the problem. We're just going to send that paper to a landfill mm-hmm. or to wherever where there's an opportunity for those PCBs to be able to get back into the environment. PCBs are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. They're in our municipal treatment plants. They're in polar bear blood. They're in the Arctic. They're in the Antarctic. They've traveled the planet. And so it, it's, a, it's a big issue. It's a big concern. Um, and so we're, we're trying to figure all of that out. Um, but uh, right now, um, uh, we're faced with that standard. And it certainly could be a, a significant threat to the future of recycling, uh, certainly at our company. Mm-hmm. So that's our biggest challenge. Well, listening to you and getting the tour, I have a feeling you will find a way to conquer that challenge. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Appreciate your confidence. (laughs) Well, Doug, tell our listeners how they can, you know, contact or get a hold of you if they are interested in coming and getting a tour. I mean, there's so much to cover. I mean, just the magnitude of what you guys do there is incredible. So sure. Yeah. And uh, maybe you can post it with the podcast. I certainly can put my contact information out there. Okay. Uh, They can reach me directly through my my email, which is my name, Doug Kropas, D-O-U-G-K-R-A-P-A-S at IEPCO.com, which is Inland Empire Paper Company.com, or uh, call me at 509-924-1911. And uh, I wear a lot of hats at the company. Obviously, public relations is one of them. That's why I'm sitting here <laughs> yeah. today. And so uh, I'd be the one more than happy to set up a tour like that for folks. It's nice if we could get a group, you know, if it's mm-hmm. a group that's out there that uh, instead of just one-offs, you know, I do have other things to do. So <laughs> the more we can put into a group, the better. So but, yeah. Uh, be more than happy and, uh, and I'm very willing to tell our story and it's so much better to see it firsthand because a picture is worth a thousand words. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Don't sleep on this opportunity listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doug, we always like to wrap up our interviews with a little bit of a spitfire round just so they can get to know you a little bit better. You, mm-hmm. you down? You betcha. Okay. Fire away. Dwayne, you want to kick us off? All right. So you said you're an automotive person, Doug? Yes. So what's your favorite muscle car? Well, I own a 1977 Trans Am. Oh, yes, that's amazing. <laughs> the one I wish I had kept, though, was a 1968 Impala Super Sport convertible. Uh, but I ended up leaving that in Pittsburgh. And uh, if my wife was here, she would be telling you awful stories about my 77 Trans Am because it's still sitting in the garage unfinished. <laughs> well, I bet you it looks so beautiful in there, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. In fact, my uh, brother-in-law uh, uses the acronym. It's a TA because the TAB. Because we use it more as a table. Oh. <laughs> <I love> it. <laughs> um, kind of on that same subject, what was the first car you ever drove? Uh, that was the '68 uh, Impala Super Sport convertible. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You're hurting me here. Uh, <laughs> I love that car. <laughs> uh, let's see what. Where's somewhere that you want to travel next? So, you know, that's trying to figure all that out. Uh, retirement is looming somewhere out there in the near horizon. And, uh, you know, I, I have these uh, discussions with my wife. And so uh, I kind of want to immerse myself in different cultures. I'd love to go to Italy, Spain, Portugal, and spend those uh, beautiful months of January, February, March away from here. Uh, and through in April, uh, yeah. or half of it anyway. No kidding. This last half April has been tough. But uh, I'd like, certainly like to go and see a lot of that. Um, we've been over pretty much the United States. There's only two states that I haven't been to. Really? Uh, oh, I'm sorry, three. Alaska, Hawaii, and New Mexico. Oh, so I'll wow. have to check the bucket on that on, uh, eventually. So I'll probably do that. But anyway, that's. I think I'd like to do something along those lines. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pull it back to the environmental side and say, do you relate with a certain tree personality-wise? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> hmm, that's an interesting question. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'm from back east, so I have an affinity for hardwoods. And uh, the uh, if you go to our our if you come to our home, uh, what I did is I planted an awful lot of hardwoods at our place. So you know, we've got maples and oaks, and uh, I've got a lot of maples, red crimson king, red maples, sugar maples, etc. And uh, I wouldn't necessarily uh, I like the oaks. You know, okay, they're the they're a you know, nice strong tree, great. You know, but I tell you what, I love the grains out here. Um, our forestry manager that I referred to before, we go out in the woods and we actually uh, harvest our own uh, wood as well too. And he has a sawmill at his place. And so uh, we go and, and uh, cut up our own side. I love like alder, you know, naughty alder. I've met, built my kitchen out of a rustic naughty alder and I just love the character of trees. I've, I've never met a tree that I haven't liked. Let me right. put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> love that answer. <laughs> So what about, so when you're not working and it's the weekends, where can you usually be found and what are you doing? Well, well, we have kids spread out across the country. So I think I mentioned to you on my way in, we just got back from Florida, nice. came back to all that snow, Ugh, uh, which yuck. was not what we were expecting coming we were down there it was 80 degrees sunshine surf and suds and you know so that was nice so we'll do a little bit of traveling uh as far as seeing the kids i have another one lives in charlotte north carolina as well too and so we'll go and visit them family in pittsburgh so travels a lot uh love just what i just said with uh, spending some guy time with uh uh forestry manager you know doing the the sawmill the uh, uh, you know (laughs) 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 guy stuff and so uh sawmilling is a blast you know and i love working with wood so uh built my own cabinets for my kitchen and love to do like we're looking for sitting here at a beautiful table here by the way mm. uh that's uh, live edge so i do a lot of live edge work and uh anything outdoors just like uh just get me outside i'm never inside i'm mm-hmm. not a tv watcher or anything like that people are always say you know asking what's you know you've seen the show this movie i'm like mm, no i think the last movie i saw in a theater was saving private ryan just to go oh. ahead. <laughs> yeah <laughs> right <laughs> there you go <laughs> so what's your favorite fishing hole around spokane uh, I'm actually from Idaho. I live in Idaho. So okay. I live in Hayden and, uh, I haven't fished much over here, uh, cause it would be illegal if I didn't have a license. <laughs> and so, um, but, uh, I'll tell you in Idaho, I, I can't tell you my favorite fishing hole. I can't yeah, put that I, on. I was though. trying to trick you. Yeah, you were. <laughs> I'm going out fishing this weekend. Uh, okay. So. <laughs> I've got a bunch of them. The one thing too, I have to say though, is I am, uh, uh, I like the, the bass and walleye type fishing. Uh, I've done a little bit of trout, but being from back East again, you know, I grew up again, dad taking us out camping and uh, just fishing for the big smallies and largemouth. And, um, but uh, I've got a couple of really good fishing holes over there that, yeah, I'll keep to myself. All right. Nice try, Dwayne. Keeping them in the vault. Keep them in the vault. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And one question we always have to ask our guests, Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Ooh, you know, wow. That's a tough one because I grew up with both of them. It was interesting because I didn't like the Beatles when I was growing up because my father didn't like them. But okay. then I got into them when I actually had a mind of my own. And yeah. uh, so I really got into the into the Beatles. And uh, But I, I can't different. They're, they're both awesome. But I'll tell you what, they don't hold a candle to Led Zeppelin. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> you can't argue yeah, with that one. Exactly. So, <laughs> that's what I grew up with. <laughs> Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Black Sabbath. and Immigrant Song that. or Stairway to Heaven? Uh, immigrant Song. Just only because Stairway to Heaven, so you know, they wore it out. I mean, gosh, you just wore it out, unfortunately. It's a great tune, too. Yeah. yeah. Good answer. <laughs> we might have to have the podcast fade out with that song. Yeah, there you go. That'd be cool. <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, Doug, thank you again so much for being on the podcast. Um, Great work you guys are doing. Um, So impressive. And listeners, again, reach out to Doug and make sure you take this opportunity to go and get a tour of the mill that's just right in our own backyard, just here in Millwood, um, doing incredible things. So thank you. Thank you. This was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Rocks to Roots is sponsored by the Office of Farmland Preservation. Office of Farmland Preservation is a program within the Washington State Conservation Commission that works to address the rapid loss of working farm and forest lands in our state. Together, the Washington State Conservation Commission and conservation districts provide voluntary, incentive-based programs that empower private landowners to implement conservation on their property. You can learn more about their programs and services by visiting their website, scc.wa.gov.